1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the perpetuation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God of love, we come to you this morning excited to worship you and to praise you. Father, help us to get a picture of your love, your great love that you have shown us, sending down your one and only son to die for us that we might have eternal life. Be with us this morning and help us to love one another as you have loved us. We pray all this in your son's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, there are only five more days until Christmas now, not much longer. What's on your to-do list for the next few days? Some shopping, no doubt, or especially in 2020, maybe waiting to see if your package is going to arrive on time. But what about other things that maybe you and your family try to do each year? Perhaps you have some Christmas traditions. One thing our family does each year is to drive around and look at the Christmas lights, and there's some great light displays this year around town. Christmas cookies are also a must in the Cook household each year, and perhaps you have uh, special desserts or foods, gingerbread houses, that you make each year. Does your family watch a particular Christmas movie each year? I know for us it's the classic White Christmas that gets watched each year. Maybe you light Advent candles or read the story of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. Advent and the Christmas season are a great time for traditions. Traditions that remind us of the celebration of the coming of Christ. And I think that building traditions into our lives, traditions that remind us of who God is and what he has done, are a valuable part of the Christian life. And they aren't only for the Christmas season. Traditions can be woven into everyday life throughout the year. One tradition that my wife started, and actually it was passed down to her from her mom, was singing to our children before we put them to bed. Currently, my two-year-old Evie has about three or four songs in the rotation. And if I don't walk back to her room and put her to bed with my wife, I will hear, hear cries of, Daddy, sing, Daddy, sing, from down the hallway. And so I join in. This is a tradition of ours. And beginning with our first daughter, Rebecca, the one song that has remained a constant is the well-known song, Jesus Loves Me. Other songs might get added and taken away, but that song remains. It is one of our traditions. It was our desire to share this good news with our girls before they even understood what it meant. You are probably familiar with the song. It begins with, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Such a simple refrain, yet packed with such a significant theological truth. Jesus loves me. And how do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. 
Throughout the storyline of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see the undeniable truth that we are loved by God. Now, the last few weeks, we've heard messages on the themes of hope, peace, and joy as we celebrate the Advent season. Today, we come to the theme of love. And what better picture of God's love than Christmas? Friends, Jesus loves you so much that even though he is fully God, he did not count that a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Love came down at Christmas. Now, there are numerous passages in the Bible that talk about love. Perhaps the best known is 1 Corinthians 13, and we already heard from John 3.16. But when I considered where in the Bible we could spend some time examining God's love, my first thought was of the book of 1 John and the well-known expression that God is love. This statement is such a foundational truth about, about, about both who God is and what love is, and it ties in perfectly with the Advent season. And so today we will be looking at 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and examining love's foundations and implications. What we have in this text today are some foundational truths about God's love for us and the implications that follow for our lives. First, I'd like to give some context to the book of 1 John. The author of the book is the same disciple of Jesus who wrote the fourth gospel account, the book of John, although he wrote this book much later in his life. This is a letter written to various churches calling Christians back to three basics of Christian life, right beliefs, right living, and right loving. Right beliefs, like confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh and died for our sins that we might have eternal life. Right living, as we are called not to love the world or the things in the world, and not to make a practice of sinning, but rather to walk in the light and not in the darkness. And right loving. For if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has, if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right beliefs right living and right loving are the marks of a true Christian. And 1 John 5.13 is a good summary statement of a key purpose of this letter. It reads, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. By examining yourself through 1 John for right beliefs, right living, and right loving, you can have assurance of your salvation. You can be confident in God's work of salvation in you and in your eternal life. Today's passage of scripture is primarily confined to a call to right loving, practicing a life of love in response to God's love. Let's begin by looking at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
The first foundational truth about love is that the source of love is God himself. So the first point here is about love's origination. Love originates with God. And notice that this is the basis for why Christians are called to love one another. We are to love because of his love. And I want to remind you that God's commands in Scripture are always grounded in who he is, what he has done, and who we are now as Christians. If you look for it, you'll see that truth all over the Bible. He doesn't call us to anything we aren't already enabled to do. So what has God done in our text today? First, it says that love is from God. Love's origination is God himself. God is a source of all things, and that includes love. Now, there are different ways the Bible talks about God's love. And to unpack this verse today, I'd like to consider three primary ways the Bible speaks of God's love. This list is not exhaustive, but I think these are helpful categories to help us understand love's origination. First, before creation, love existed within God himself. The first type of God's love we see is love within the Trinity. If you aren't familiar with it, the word Trinity is how we describe the, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and yet there is only one God. The word Trinity means tri-unity, or three-in-oneness. It summarizes the numerous scriptures in the Bible that demonstrate that there is only one God, and he exists in three distinct persons. So what I'm talking about is the love that eternally exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, we see the love of God the Father for God the Son in several different places, such as John 17, 24, which says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The love and relational interaction among the members of the Trinity did not begin at any point in time, but has always existed. And in John 14, 31, Jesus proclaims his love for the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus is obedient to the Father's will because of his great love for the Father. We also see the Holy Spirit's love for the Son in John 16, 14 when Jesus testifies about the Holy Spirit, that he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to glorify the Son, which he does out of love. This love within the Trinity existed before creation and was fully realized with Jesus's mission here on earth and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Real love requires relationship. And within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit, we see the origination of God's love. 
This intra-Trinitarian love of God then serves as a basis for God's love to the world. This is the second form of God's love, his providential love for all creation. And in fact, we see this in the very act of creation itself. God created all things, not because he needed them, but because of his great love. If we look at the creation account in Genesis 1, we see that on the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. That refrain, it was good, is repeated throughout the creation account, ending with the declaration that it was very good with the creation of man and woman in his own image. God's testament that his creation was good is a pronouncement of his love over all that he has made. Jesus reminds us of this when he tells us that God clothes the grass of the fields with the glory of the wildflowers. God feeds the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air, and not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from God's will. God loves his creation, and this love is for all of creation, not just a part of it. Matthew 5.45 shows us this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God shows grace and care for all of his creatures. God created the world and everything in it out of his great love, and he has a providential love over all that he has made. The third way we see love talked about in the Bible is God's particular love for his people. His particular love for his people. And we see this love directed towards individuals, towards the nation of Israel, and later followers of Christ, the church. Perhaps the first instance of this was with Noah. At the time of Noah, God looked down on the earth and saw that the wickedness of man was great, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord made a decision to blot out all people and animals on the earth. But in Genesis 6-8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's love for Noah and his family was a particular, selective, and effective kind of love. We see this type of love resurface with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and on through to the nation of Israel. The people of Israel were told, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has a particular love for his people. And the noticeable thing about these passages, about Noah and about Israel, is that there's no, nothing of personal or national merit. This is not a love that they have earned. They are chosen only because of the love of God. And the same is true of Christians today. Ephesians reminds us of this, where it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. God chose us out of his love, not based on anything we have done. And God's particular love for his people is a natural outflowing of the love that has always existed within the Trinity. Jesus told his disciples as much in John 15, 9, where it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus loves us as the Father has loved him. Love's origination is between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That love led to the creation of the world and his providential love over all that he has made. And finally, that love led to his particular, selective, and effective love for his people. Now, one more comment about love's origination before we move on. John also goes on here to say that God is love. What an incredible statement that is. The very definition of love is found in God himself. But sometimes that can get misrepresented. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Rule of Love, I think has a helpful comment on this verse. He says, we need to think about what the Bible means here. When it says God is love, it's not saying there's this thing out there called love and that God measures up to it. There is no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe, independent of God, so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. And I think that's a helpful reflection. We need to be reminded that God defines love for us, not the other way around. Almost 10 years ago, uh, former megachurch pastor Rob Bell came out with a book titled Love Wins. His argument begins with the statement that God desires all people to be saved, which comes from 1 Timothy 2.4. And therefore, every sinner will ultimately turn to God and there will be no eternal hell because in the end, love wins. But when you read 1 Timothy 2.4 in context, all points to all kinds of people, not every single person. And his understanding just doesn't match up with other passages, like Romans 9.22, where it says that God desires to show his wrath. And why would Hebrews 10.31 tell us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if we all end up in heaven anyway? Because ultimately, love wins. This version of God might seem like all love, but it is a love rooted in our modern Western definition of love more than it is careful biblical reflection. It is a love that threatens to swallow up God's glory and God's holiness. But we are not in a position to define what love is and then fit God into that definition. God is love. And who he is in the Bible, including his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, and all of who he is, defines what true love is. So the source of love is God himself. And he has demonstrated his love for us in sending his own son. Let's look at verse 9. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Here we see love's manifestation. Love's manifestation. God's love was made manifest or displayed or demonstrated in God sending his only son into the world. Friends, this is what Christmas is all about. Look past the decorations, the shopping, the time off of work and school and presents underneath the tree. Christmas is all about love. Love that came down in Jesus Christ. Consider what God did in love. He sent his only son into the world. Some versions of the Bible translate this as God's one and only son. And I think this helps emphasize the fact that Jesus holds a unique place in the Father's love. He is the dearest and most precious to his heart. The son with whom he shared eternal love and he blessed with eternal glory. It was this one and only son that God sent from heavenly glory to take human nature to himself, to be conceived in the womb of Mary and to be born into this fallen and dark world of sin. And this was prophesied long ago. You see, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, they ran away from God. They hid from God. They wanted to be away from his presence. So God gave them what they wanted and sent them out of the garden and away from him. And no longer would they live with God forever. Death was now the reality for all mankind. But God's love remained. He didn't leave them with no hope. He told them that one day a child would come as savior, one who would restore the relationship that had been destroyed by sin and Satan, one who would destroy sin and death. Eve's name even means life giver. And through an offspring of hers, death would be no more. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was that offspring. He came that we might live through him, that we might have eternal life, and that our relationship with the Father would be restored. The love of God was made manifest in the coming of Christ in the form of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But for us to gain eternal life, more was needed than just his manifestation, his coming. So let's look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here we see not just love's manifestation, but also love's propitiation. Love's propitiation. Now, propitiation is a fancy word, but essentially it means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and changes God's wrath toward us into his favor. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. His death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, 
while his perfectly righteous life changed God's wrath toward us into his favor. We read about this in several Bible passages. For instance, Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All, every person, everywhere has fallen short of what God requires. We have all sinned. But Christ's death on the cross, his blood provides redemption for us. And what are we redeemed from? The wrath of a holy and just God. Romans chapter 1 reminds us of this, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is just, and God's wrath is his love in action against sin. It is not loving to ignore sin or wipe it under the rug. God's holiness and justice demand that sin be dealt with, and the cross is the perfect picture of that. To those of you out there who aren't Christians, who haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, I urge you to look to Jesus, God's love made manifest, who came down at Christmas that you might have eternal life. Look to the cross, where God demonstrated his love for us by sending his one and only son to take our penalty to bear the wrath of God against us. Look to God's love and be saved. If we celebrate Christmas without a view of Calvary and the cross, we haven't fully understood God's love. These are foundational truths about God's love. Love originates with God himself to such a degree that John says God is love. Love was made manifest in the coming of Christ. And Jesus didn't come to earth just to live a good life and point us to God. Jesus came to earth to die, that we might live through him. He came to be our perfect sacrifice, to satisfy, to propitiate the wrath of God against us and gift us his righteousness. Now let's move on to look at the implications of God's love with a command to love one another. Verses 11 and 12 read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John is urging his readers, in light of how much God has loved us, to love one another. This is love's obligation. Love's obligation. As Christians, beloved of God, we are called to love one another. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are many one another commands given to Christians. We're called to love one another 
encourage one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, guard one another in the faith, just to name a few. But according to one count, fully one-third of these one-another commands are a call to love one another. Love is the action that should most define our relationship with other Christians. Jesus laid this out pretty clearly in John 13, 34 to 35. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the command to love one another is distinct from the command to love your neighbor. The command to love your neighbor first came in the Old Testament and then was restated by Jesus alongside the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The command to love your neighbor is a call to love each and everyone around us as we love ourselves. And we're called to do this out of God's providential love over all creation and in order to live peaceably with all mankind. The command to love one another, to love other Christians, however, is a new and different command. Our love for one another should be the same love that Jesus demonstrated through his life and his death. A practical love. A love that involves tangibly helping our brothers and sisters in the faith. And a sacrificial love. A love that is willing to count others as more significant than ourselves. And note that this love has a different purpose. It says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This practical, sacrificial love for other Christians is meant so that non-believers will take notice. That they will see us laying down our lives for one another and think, where do they get that kind of love? Love must be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' disciples. And the other leaders and I have been greatly encouraged that a consistent refrain we hear from visitors to our church is what great love they see here at Apostles. The love we display for one another and the love that we display for those visiting our church. And I want to encourage you to continue in that love. Continue to put aside your personal preferences to love on Christians around you who might look different, speak differently, or vote differently than you. In 2020, COVID-19 health orders, race relations and riots, and the election results have led to increased polarization and animosity in this country. It's not to be this way in the church. Part of what it means to be a church is loving people who are different from us, where getting to know them is a bit more work and feels less comfortable, where relationships require more charity and more patience. Seek to draw people into your life from all sorts of backgrounds, rather than just clumping to the crowd where you fit in best at the end of a Sunday service. And find practical and sacrificial ways to love one another as Christ has loved you. But there's more here to unpack. Let's look back at verse 12. 
It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one can claim to have fully seen God apart from God's one and only son. But if we love one another, we demonstrate that the unseen God lives within us. By loving one another, we make the invisible God visible to a watching world. It also says that our love for one another demonstrates that God abides in us. And he does this through the Holy Spirit, who lives inside every believer. And this gives us confidence of our salvation. If we look back at verse 7, it makes a similar point when it says that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. A life marked by love, alongside right beliefs and right living, completes the picture of a life in fellowship with God. This is one way that you can examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Now, there's one final implication here, and that's love's anticipation. Love's anticipation. You see, Advent is a time when we not only look back at Christ's first coming into the world, but look forward to his coming return. Love not only was made manifest in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but love anticipates his final arrival. See here where it says that if we love one another, his love is perfected in us. God's love is made perfect, made complete in believers when they love one another and God abides in us. Try to picture this with me as a sort of circle or circuit. The circuit of God's love originated within the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's love moved out into the act of creation itself and over all that he has made. God's love was then poured out on his people in a particular, selective, and effective way. And God's love was made manifest among us in sending his one and only Son to be the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And finally, God's love is perfected. The circuit is completed when we love one another and God abides in us. Our relationship with him, broken by sin in the garden long ago, is restored. What an amazing picture of God's love. And this gives us confidence for his return. Verse 17 tells us this. Love perfected in us gives us confidence for the day of judgment. We need not shrink from him in shame at his second coming because God lives in us. You see, either eternal life or eternal punishment awaits all humanity when Christ returns. And God's love furnishes a sure hope for those who have repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ alone. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Father God, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And Father, we confess to you that we are not always giving you the glory that you are due. 
that we don't always live according to your standards, that we have sinned against you. But Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great love that began with you among Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank you for creation and for your providential love over all that you have made. We thank you for your particular love over us. And we thank you for your love being made manifest in the coming of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas. And that his life and death, through his death, he made propitiation, sacrifice for our sins. And so, Father, I pray that you would, in light of those great truths, help us to love one another. Particularly as we go through this Christmas season and as we deal with COVID, help us to demonstrate to the world your great love by loving one another. And Father, we pray all this in the matchless name of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.